I don't know if you looked at your bulletin, but my sermon outline is printed there. It says, point one, Jesus is dead. Point two, the apostles are liars. Point three, the faith is, your faith is useless. Number four, the curse of death remains. Be encouraged. I will not blame you if you looked at this and you thought, this is looking like it's going to be the worst sermon of all time. Um, Matt D'Amico sent the sermon outline to the elders this week without the title to the sermon. He said, I was trying to get everyone as pessimistic as possible before going to the Southern Baptist Convention. So uh, that is actually not the aim. And uh, we have brighter prospects than that. But let's pray first. And we'll get into it. Father, we thank you that the grave indeed could not keep the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that you have made every provision for us in the person of your son. He is not dead. He is alive. He is seated at your right hand even now. And because of that, we have great hope. So, Father, I pray as we open this text that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. And, Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this year, uh, the Anglican Church appointed an interim ambassador to the Vatican, which is like their, uh, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury's representative to the Pope. And the, the interim ambassador that they appointed is a guy named the very, the very Reverend Dr. John Shepherd. And so Shepherd's job is to represent the Archbishop of Canterbury, kind of like an ambassador there at the Vatican. And after he was appointed, the news came out that the very Reverend Shepherd had delivered a really um, eyebrow-raising Easter message some years ago in which he said this. So I'm going to read to you from the very Reverend Dr. John Shepherd's Easter message. He said this. He said, The resurrection of Jesus ought not to be seen in physical terms, but as a new spiritual reality. It is important for Christians to be set free from the idea that the resurrection was an extraordinary physical event which restored Jesus' original earthly body. Jesus' early followers felt his presence after his death as strongly as if it were a physical presence and incorporated this sense of resurrection experience into their gospel accounts. But they're not historical records as we expect history to be written today. They are symbolic images of the breaking through of the resurrection spirit into human lives. The early Christians wanted to convey their conviction that Jesus, despite the fact that he'd been put to death, overcame this death and all the constrictions of death that went with it and now lived, this is Jesus, now lived as a transformed spiritual reality to strengthen, inspire, and console. So the empty tomb is not the assurance that our bodies will be miraculously reassembled, thank goodness, nor is it the hope of the extension of life for a few believers, which would demean the graciousness and generosity of God. 
It's the image of the complete transformation of life available to all. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus need not require us to believe in the physical resuscitation of Jesus' earthly body. People who find that concept difficult are by no means excluded from the Christian faith and the celebration of Easter. End quote. Now, when the very reverend shepherd said these words, he was the head of the cathedral in Perth, Australia. He was a pastor. Now, it may come, this may come as a surprise to some of you, but what this guy was saying is really not all that strange among liberal mainline churches. In those kinds of churches, it's common to find pastors and church leaders who don't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But notice the claim that Reverend Shepherd makes at the end of his statement. He claims that believing in the physical resurrection of Jesus is not necessary for being a Christian. Basically, it doesn't matter. If you want to believe in it, fine. If you don't want to believe in it, that's fine too. You can be a Christian either way, according to this Reverend Shepherd. So what I, what I want to ask this morning is, is he right? Is it really true that it doesn't matter whether we believe Jesus to be raised bodily from the dead? If we deny Jesus' bodily resurrection, what, what difference does it really make? After all, aren't there some nice things that we can learn from Jesus even if he has not been raised from the dead? Even the most liberal Bible scholars would agree that Jesus lived this extraordinary life. He was kind. He was loving. He gave us the golden rule. He gave us do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He, he gave us love your neighbor as yourself. He even gave us love your enemies. He suffered and he even died for what he believed in. Can't Jesus be great and worthy of our admiration and devotion without our having to believe that he was actually raised from the dead. Why can't that be the case? Also, how are we ever going to convince modern people to become Christians if they have to believe something so strange as a bodily resurrection from the dead? Doesn't the resurrection... That doctrine, doesn't it make Christianity seem kind of strange to modern people? Doesn't it kind of <clears throat> repel them from Jesus when we want them to come to Jesus? If we could just sort of unload this resurrection thing, maybe a lot more people would come to Jesus. He's, he's a great moral example. Don't we want people to follow the teachings of Jesus? Wouldn't the world be a better place if more people would follow the teachings of Jesus even if they did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Why make things so hard for people who might otherwise want to follow Jesus? Well, if you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19. And we're going to find out in this text that there's not actually really anything new under the sun. Because in this text, we're going to find the Apostle Paul confronting 
similar questions to the, to the range of questions that I just posed to you a moment ago. Some people within the Corinthian church that he was writing to were actually questioning the notion of resurrection. So in the first 11 verses of this chapter, we've already seen that Paul has established Jesus' resurrection as absolutely fundamental to the apostolic message that they had believed when they were first saved. And now he's having to confront the fact that at least some of them are dangerously close to denying that resurrection. And so this entire chapter is dealing with resurrection, but in verses 12 through 19, it's focusing on this hypothetical question. What if there were no such thing as resurrection? What difference would it make? And so Paul is saying in these verses that it makes all the difference in the world. If there were no resurrection, then that would lead us to four awful conclusions, which are those four main points that I read to you a moment ago. If there is no such thing as resurrection, then Jesus is dead. The apostles are liars. Your faith is useless and the curse of death remains. That's what would result if Jesus is in fact not alive. So the first result would be this, that Jesus is dead. Now, everybody look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, notice that Paul starts his argument with something that sounds hypothetical. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. But is this really hypothetical? Well, no, it isn't. The word that's translated as proclaimed in the ESV is the same word translated as preach in verse 11, where Paul says, so we preach and so you believed. Now think back to our last sermon on 1 Corinthians 15 and try to remember who is the we that Paul refers to in verse 11. The we refers to the apostles, including Paul. So he says, so think about what that means for verse 12. When Paul says, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, what he means is, is if we apostles are really preaching Christ as raised from the dead, how is it that some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so this gets to the heart of, of much of what was wrong in Corinth. The Corinthians were holding and heralding a belief that is contrary to what the apostles plainly taught them. Paul and the apostles preach, according to verses 3 through 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So in other words, Paul and the apostles preach the resurrection from the dead. And now Paul is astonished that the Corinthians are going against that clear and unambiguous message. And so Paul's saying, how is it that some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? You, you of all people, how is it that you would take it upon yourself to contradict us apostles? Who are you to defy what the apostles are teaching? Did you bear witness with your own eyes to the resurrection? 
Did Jesus promise to lead you into all truth like he did the apostles? Did he promise to bring to your mind everything that he taught you like he did to us? Did Jesus appear to you personally after his resurrection and appoint you to bear his name to the Gentiles like Jesus did for me, Paul would say? If not, if none of those things happen to you, Corinthians, how is it that you would dare to contradict what these eyewitness apostles are teaching. So before we even get into the issue of resurrection, we really need to to let the weight of Paul's question in verse 12 land on us. We really need to search our own hearts on this because this is a conflict of authority that's going on. Is there an area in your life where you think that you know better than what has been revealed to us by the apostles in the scriptures? Is there an area in your life that you know the scriptures clearly speak to, but you think that your own ideas or our culture's ideas or Jordan Peterson's ideas or your political party's ideas, you think that those ideas are superior to what the apostolic scripture actually says? If there is such an area in your life, you need to know that you aren't just raising up your opinion over and against an apostle. You are raising up your opinion over and against God. Because the apostles are speaking for God. So this really does come down to an issue of authority. Will you submit your heart and mind and life to God's authority or... Will you rebel against that authority by substituting your will for God's will? That's the question that Paul is confronting the Corinthians with. It's the same one he's confronting us with. It's a question of authority. And when it comes to these disputes over the resurrection, in large part, it's a question over authority. We've got a number of people from the first century who saw Jesus after he died alive. Were they right or not? But in Paul's case here, when he's talking to the Corinthians, Paul has in mind specifically those people in that church that were saying that there was no such thing as resurrection from the dead. But notice that they weren't saying directly that Christ was never raised from the dead. Okay? It says they were denying the category of bodily resurrection altogether. Now, why would they do that? So it's not, so so notice the words. How is it some of you are saying there's no resurrection of the dead? That's not Christ didn't raise from the dead. It's they're denying the category of resurrection altogether. Why would they do that? Well, the Bible doesn't merely teach us about Jesus's resurrection from the dead. The Bible teaches us that every single one of us will be raised. From the dead. That's why we had Colin read from Daniel chapter 12 in verses 1 to 3 just moments ago. Because in verse 2 it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This text is not talking about people who are literally asleep in the dirt. This text is talking about people who are dead and decaying in the dirt. And God is saying that he will raise up dead bodies from the dirt. Not just the righteous, but also the unrighteous will be raised up. 
which means that God is going to raise every single person who has ever lived when the end of the age comes. So long before the Bible says anything explicit about Jesus's resurrection from the dead, it teaches us about our resurrection from the dead. This was not a strange concept to the Jews in the first century. They knew about the concept of resurrection because they read their Old Testament. They knew there would be a final judgment, and at the final judgment, the graves were going to empty, and people would get up bodily. Some people would go to a resurrection of blessedness and some to a resurrection of judgment, but everybody was getting up one way or the other. And God would give to people bodies fit for their eternal destiny, some for eternity with Christ and a new heavens and new earth, and others to an eternity in a place of judgment called hell. Jesus himself spoke of this general resurrection from the dead in John chapter 5 and verses 28 to 29 when he said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus says that he himself will be the agent of God's judgment at the last day and that he himself will will call people forth from their graves, just like he calls, called Lazarus out of his, his grave. Lazarus, come forth. Except that the judgment, Jesus is going to call people forth. And he's going to separate them to their respective destinies. So now think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12. When Paul says, how are some of you saying that there is no resurrection from the dead? He's pointing out that some of the Corinthians are opposed not explicitly to Jesus' resurrection, but to our resurrection. Our resurrection that the Bible teaches at the end of the age. Some of the Corinthian believers had begun to go sour on the idea that at some point after death, believers are raised up to bod bodily from, from the grave. So wh why would these Corinthian believers have a problem with believing in that general resurrection from the dead? Well, I think that there were some in the congregation, we've already seen evidence of this back in chapter 6, there were some in the congregation who found the idea of resurrection to be intellectually unpalatable. They were more influenced by Plato than they were by Paul. The spirit of the age held to a kind of Platonic dualism that disdained the physical world for the higher knowledge of wisdom and spiritual existence. So like many people who were fixated on the wisdom of the world at that time, one commentator says it this way, they may have desired the escape of the rational soul from the body, viewing the body as a dark and corrupt tomb from which the enlightened person ought to seek release, end quote. Which means it was just common in the, in the day to think that the material world is not the real world. The real world is the world of forms, the world of spirits. What's essential about us is not our bodies. What's essential about us is our soul. When God saves us, he saves our soul. And our, our souls are then set free from the prison house of the body. Bodies aren't important. Souls are important to God. So in this popular way of thinking, salvation involved a release from the physical body, not a return to a physical body after death. And so the idea of resurrection was absurd to many of the sophisticates of the first century. You remember when Paul was preaching to the philosophers on Mars Hill. Remember that the, uh, 
the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that he was preaching to, they listened to him and they tolerated what he was saying to them up until he got to what part? The part about the resurrection. And then it says they begin to sneer at him. Any notion of salvation that involved dead bodies coming to life was absurd to many people in the Gentile world when Paul was preaching. So it looks like there were folks at Corinth who had been influenced by this way of thinking. In fact, Paul already confronted it ex explicitly when we were looking at chapter 6. Remember some men were justifying going and visiting prostitutes? Why? Well, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. They're all going to die anyway. That was their justification. So we already know they're having a problem with this. But now Paul is going to make them come face to face with the implications of that belief. You really want to say bodies don't matter. You really want to say there's no resurrection of the dead? Well, let's talk about that. Let's just bear that out and see what it brings us to. So he's going to spell out these four implications, but the first one is, for, is verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You want to be opposed in principle to dead bodies coming back to life? Then whether you realize it or not, you're opposed to what the apostles preach. The apostles preached that Jesus' body came back to life. If you think that salvation means freeing the soul from the body, then what are you going to do with Jesus? You're going to have to deny that he was raised bodily. You're going to have to say that the gospel accounts are metaphors for some resurrection of the spirit of Jesus, but not of his body. In short, if you think there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus is in fact still dead. And if Jesus is dead, then the entire Christian faith falls apart. Are there still people today who deny the general resurrection like the Corinthians did? Maybe they're not thinking in their minds explicitly Jesus is not raised from the dead. But in their own minds, they're thinking that there's not really a general resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. Are there people who still think that today? You better believe that there are people who still think that today. There are people all over our churches who think that today. I bet that there are people in this room who think that today. The very position that the Apostle Paul confronts as heretical in this text, I think, has become one of the most popular understandings of what's going to happen to us after we die among people sitting in pews today. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but um, one time I was preaching a sermon at a, diff a different church in a different state, and I was preaching at a church near Birmingham, Alabama. And it was a sermon on resurrection. <clears throat> and I was a guest preacher there, and I was preaching on 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul talks about all the suffering he went through as an apostle. And the reason that he was able to face death for the sake of Christ was because he was not trusting in himself, but in God who raises the dead. Which means I can die if I need to, because I know at the end of the age, God raises me up. They can kill my body, but God raises my body up. It's, a, it's a, Paul talking about why resurrection was so important for his ap apostolic mission. I get through preaching this sermon. Guy comes up to me. He's like 50 years old. He says, I really liked your sermon, except for the part about our physical bodies being raised up at the end of the age. 
As I said, we're all going to be raised up, just like Paul's talking about here. He says, and he, he tells me, the Bible teaches us that when we die, our souls go to live in heaven forever. And that's what happens to us, and our bodies just stay, you know, dead. But we get raised up in our souls, that kind of a, a resurrection. And so I found myself right there at the front of the church with this church member, Southern Baptist Church, explaining to him Christianity 101. What we confess every week when we confess the Apostles' Creed in this church. I believe in the resurrection of the body. That is the ancient faith, right? In fact, to miss this is to miss the faith. It is the heart of the apostolic preaching. There is no Christianity or salvation apart from this truth. If you cannot embrace this truth with your whole heart, you cannot become a Christian. And if you try to be a Christian while denying this truth, the whole thing just falls apart. If you deny resurrection, then Jesus is still dead. And you can't even say that Christ is dead because the real Christ, the Messiah, can't be dead. If he's dead, he's not the Christ. He's just some guy from Nazareth named Jesus. Jesus, and he can't do anything to save you at the last day or anybody else because he couldn't even save himself. He's still dead. And if that were true, the rest of the faith would come crashing down like a house of cards. Now, the truth is that that's not true. Jesus isn't dead. In fact, Paul says as much in so many words in verse 20, doesn't he? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But Paul wants us to consider what the implications would be if it were true that there were no such thing as the resurrection. And the first thing that would be true is that Jesus is still dead. And furthermore, if Jesus is still dead, it brings us to the second thing that would be true. Then the apostles are liars. Everybody look at verse 14. And if Christ Jesus has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. For something to be in vain means that it does not achieve its desired purpose or result. In this case, both the apostolic preaching and the faith of the people who respond to that preaching would never achieve their intended purpose. The Apostle Paul preaches the gospel so that people will believe and be saved and be preserved all the way until their resurrection from the grave. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus is dead. If Jesus is still dead, there's no way for us to be made alive. Which means that the apostles' preaching will never reach its goal and neither will our faith. By definition, preaching and faith are in vain. Moreover, look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he... He did not, in fact, raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Now, again, when Paul says we, who's he referring to? He's talking about himself and the other apostles. Those apostles preach that God raised Christ from the dead bodily. But if Plato is right and Paul is wrong and there is no resurrection, then not even Jesus is raised. And if Jesus is not raised, in fact, and if the apostles claim otherwise, then the apostles are liars. If the apostles are liars, 
then you can throw your Bibles away. That's what that means. The central message of this book is that the apostles and prophets are telling us that Jesus Christ has been crucified and raised for sinners. If that isn't true, then the authors of these books have pulled a massive hoax on us. They've lied to the world about what happened to Jesus. And if we can't trust the apostles in that, then you can't know God or be reconciled to him. And if you can't trust them in that central message that they bore witness to, you can't trust them for anything. You don't go to liars to learn what's true about life, which is why it's such a fool's errand to think you're going to come to this book and find anything useful there if you're denying that the resurrection ever took place. What does Lucy tell Charlie Brown every time she gets the football in her hands? Come on, Charlie Brown, I'll hold it for you. Come kick it. Charlie Brown says, no, you won't. You'll pull it out and I'll, at the last minute and I'll end up flat on my back. And Lucy says, no, I won't. Really, this time, I'll really hold it for you. I'll let you kick it. And Charlie Brown says, you mean it? <laughs> really? And then he goes for it again. And you see it, he goes and he kicks and he, she pulls it out and he flips and he lays, he lays flat on his back, humiliated. Every time she pulls it away. It's foolish for Charlie Brown to trust Lucy to hold that football when she's proven that she can't be trusted. How much more foolish is it to trust the word of so-called eyewitnesses when they're lying, supposedly, about the central thing that they're supposedly had borne witness to? If the apostles aren't telling us the truth about the resurrection, we can't trust them about anything. If anything is clear in their teaching, it's that they saw, they said they saw Jesus raised with their eyes. Peter and James and John and the others not only saw him, it says they touched him. They had their doubts too. Remember Thomas? I won't believe unless I see him with my eyes and touch him. Jesus says, come over here and touch me. It says they ate with him. Sure it was a physical resurrection? Well, he ate. Ghosts don't eat. The gospel accounts are bending over backwards to show us that these men bore witness to a physical resurrection with proofs that, they could, that could not be refuted. Indeed, John the Apostle in his first letter says this in John, 1 John chapter 1. In verse 1, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled, Concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard to you also, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Either these guys really saw Jesus or they are liars. There really is no in-between position on this. That Reverend Shepherd that I mentioned at the beginning, he wants to pretend that there are still important things to learn from the apostles, even if Jesus is still dead. He could not be more wrong. If Jesus is dead, they are liars, and you shouldn't listen to them about love your neighbor, about do unto others as you would have them do unto you. None of that moral instruction matters if Jesus is dead. 
And you should ignore it. But he's not dead. He's alive. And do you know what that means? It means that you not only should trust what they preach about the resurrection, what the apostles preach about the resurrection. What that means is that it, it is your duty under God to listen and to, to and obey every single thing that they teach about life and godliness. All of it is true. They are speaking for Jesus himself and they have an authority that we must submit to. So if Jesus, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus is dead and the apostles are liars. Neither one of those things are true. But the third thing that would be, happen if there were no resurrection is that your faith would be useless. Look at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now what you need to notice here is the connection between faith and being still in your sins. Paul teaches that we are justified by grace through faith. Remember that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Paul teaches it's not by our works, but by Jesus' works on our behalf, especially his perfect life and death on the cross for us. That's how we're saved. Faith is what connects us to Jesus' gift for us. We can't earn this salvation. It's given to us as a gift. We just receive it by faith. We have to believe. But what if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead? Then Paul says that your faith is futile, which means it's of no use. It's empty. It's idle. It's fruitless. It's useless. It's lacking truth. Your faith doesn't amount to anything if he's not alive. Now, at first blush, this is a little bit confusing. After all, think about this. Isn't it Jesus' death on the cross that secures our forgiveness of sins? Isn't that what we believe? Isn't that what Paul says in verse 3? Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Isn't it the case that Jesus' death, he died for us, that's where he paid for our sins, right? On the cross? If that's the case, isn't it enough that he died for our sins? Can't he purchase forgiveness from sins just by dying in our place? Why does he have to be resurrected to, to secure forgiveness from sins? Well, it is true that Jesus' death pays for our sins, but it's also true what Paul says in Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. If Christ's work on the cross secures our forgiveness of sins and justifies us, then Christ's resurrection secures and validates that work. How is that? Well, Jesus is vindicated at his resurrection, isn't he? His vindication is counted to us as our vindication in the present time before the eyes of God. He's declared right. He's vindicated from all the claims against him. And that vindication becomes ours in the present time. His resurrection guarantees that aspect of our justification right now. And without it, we're still in our sins. We're unvindicated. Also, Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of more resurrections to come. When Christ's people will be raised and vindicated in the eyes of everyone, not just in the eyes of God. Jesus' resurrection proves that when we die, he's not going to pull the football away and leave us dead on our backs and humiliated. He is going to come through for us in the end. That's what that means. 
But if Christ is dead, then none of that is true. Your faith hasn't connected you to salvation at all because there is no salvation or forgiveness of sins if Christ is dead. All there is is this long dead Jew rotting and long since disintegrated somewhere in a grave in Palestine. And that can't help any, anybody. So if there's no resurrection, Jesus is dead, the apostles are lies, your faith is useless. And the last thing is that the curse of death remains. Everybody look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. All of those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, did you notice that Paul picks up on the imagery from Daniel chapter 12 that we read earlier? Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 talks about dead people as those who are asleep in the dust of the ground. He's using sleep imagery that Jesus himself used of the of. Lazarus, when Lazarus died. Remember that? Remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples after Lazarus died? John eleven eleven. Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the apostles were like, Well, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. And Jesus finally says, He's dead. Okay? Uh, but he's using that same sleep imagery. Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. When he says that we don't want to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. You don't grieve about people who are just sleeping. You grieve about people who are dead. So Daniel, Jesus, Paul, all of them are using the sleep imagery to describe death. Why, why does the Bible describe death in terms of of sleep. The reason is because it's trying to teach us that death is not the period at the end of life's sentence. It's a comma. We understand that death is not permanent. Jesus is coming to wake up the dead so that their state is often described in terms that don't sound permanent. They're just asleep. They could be awoken because people who sleep eventually wake up. So when Paul uses that sleep imagery in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep in Christ. He's trying to reassure believers who have anxiety about their loved ones who have already died as Christians. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, he's trying to do the opposite. He's trying to induce some anxiety among those Corinthians about the fate of their loved ones. Listen, if you don't think that there's such a thing as the resurrection of the dead... Your loved ones stay dead. You will never see them again. They have perished. There will be no happy reunions in the age to come. They are, for all intents and purposes, damned. That's what that would mean if you deny the resurrection of the dead. There's no seeing them again. And you've lost them forever. So Paul says in verse 19, If in Christ we have hope, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Again, who's the we in this text? It's the apostles. He says, if we apostles have hoped in Christ in this life only, we apostles are most to be pitied. Why would he focus on the apostles here? Well, it's because the apostles are pouring their lives out for the gospel. And in Paul's case, 
He is being persecuted and beaten and stoned and left for dead in all these different places that he's going to preach to. And, he, and then he'll go back to those places and preach some more and they'll mistreat him some more, even after trying to kill him. He's, he's saying that we're of all people most to be, what kind of a life is that? Is it worth living your life on the edge of death all the time if this is it? If after you die, there's nothing, you just stay dead? Paul's saying, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, we're most to be pitied. Look at the way we're living. But if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, why, why, why would Paul do this? I mean, I'm just asking you an historical question here. Paul was a Pharisee. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. He had nothing to, to gain socially by becoming a Christian. And yet, everybody agrees about this. Paul was converted, and he came to Christ. And then he would go to all these different places, and they would just beat him half to death. And then he would still keep preaching Christ. Would a person do that if they hadn't actually seen Jesus with their own two eyes? You can't explain the existence of an Apostle Paul apart from a resurrection. It just doesn't happen. This is why this eyewitness testimony has been so compelling for, to so many over the centuries. Paul, said, Paul would not have risked his own life for a corpse. If, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, you know what you do? You would make the most out of your life apart from Christ. You certainly wouldn't court suffering and death. Because it's foolish to throw away the one life that you have on a ghost. You would need something real and beautiful and alive before you'd risk your life for it. And that's what's happening to Paul. And that's what happens to every single Christian who comes to faith in Jesus. Why would Paul have gone through all the suffering he went through? Why would he have sacrificed all that if he didn't believe in the bodily re resurrection of Jesus? He wouldn't have. We wouldn't have. But he did see it. And that because he did see it, now we can see it. You know, until the resurrection grips our hearts, this is a fact, y'all, until the resurrection grips your heart, you will not risk anything for God or for his kingdom. You won't risk your possessions. You won't risk your reputation. You won't risk your life. The only way you would ever face any kind of deprivation like that is if you believe that you were going to get it back and then some in the age to come. If you believe that this life is all that we have, you're not going to sacrifice anything. When people believe that this life is all that they have, you know what they do? They live for themselves. They don't love their neighbors. They don't love their enemies. They don't give their money and time away to serve other people. They don't spend every moment trying to figure out how they can bless other people. They spend every moment serving themselves. But they, and they don't take time to look beyond the horizon of their own interests. Why would they? They've got to eat, drink, and be merry because they're going to die before they know it. Unless and until you begin to see the promise of resurrection as more precious than anything, you won't live with the kind of large-hearted, full-throated love that God wants you to live with. You will simply spend your life curating your own interests while ignoring God's interests. And this ought not be. 
And it doesn't have to be, does it? Because of verse 20. Verse 20 is our next message, but we have to read it again. Because Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Which means, since that is true, we can turn around every single one of those main points. Jesus is alive. The apostles tell the truth all the time. Your faith is of immeasurable value because it connects you to life and to salvation. And the curse of death has indeed been removed. And the dead in Christ who have gone before are not going to stay dead. And you are not going to stay dead. Jesus is going to wake them up and you up and raise us in glory. And we will be in physical bodies forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And thus we shall be ever with the Lord. And it doesn't matter what anybody takes away from us here. Nobody can take that away. Which means it doesn't matter what we lose here. Because we will get it all back. And then some in the age to come. And we will look back and we will look at all of these afflictions here. And we will say that they were momentary and they were light. Compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Father, I pray that you would seal this message to our hearts. I pray for your people to believe this, to believe and see how Jesus' resurrection connects to their resurrection, how his life now means that we will live forever. And you're not going to pull the football away from us. You're not going to disappoint us. You're not going to leave us hanging. We will close our eyes one last time and then they will open again and we will see you. Father, would you help us to have this hope fixed on you and that you would sanctify us by this hope. I pray for brothers and sisters here who are suffering now for various reasons. Maybe they're suffering for their faith. Maybe they're suffering because they're sick. Maybe they're suffering because they feel a diagnosis that seems to have death at the end of it. Father, I pray for those brothers and sisters that you would come to them now and powerfully assure them of the resurrection of Jesus and that he will raise them up and he will not disappoint. Father, I pray for those who are here who don't know you and who are lost and without hope and without God in the world. Lord, I pray that you would grant them to repent of their sin and to trust in Jesus and to be saved. Father, I pray for you to do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.